Well, I break this shirt out twice a year, this weekend and one in November. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that I was an adult before I understood the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Tomorrow in our country, we will observe a national honor, uh, holiday to honor those that have given their lives in military service for our country. And if someone in your family was among the fallen, then you understand the cost of freedom. It is still Good Friday in our passage this morning, and Good Friday, much like Memorial Day, is a reminder that freedom is costly. Jesus has died. More accurately, he was put to death. You can tell an awful lot about a person's moral compass by seeing how they respond to death. This morning, we were looking at the behavior of two prominent Pharisees, high-ranking officials, members of the Sanhedrin, and how they responded in a hard-to-fathom kindness to Jesus' death. Imagine, if you will, what it must have been like in the moments immediately after Jesus had died for those that had been following him, believing that he was about to rid them of both religious and Roman tyranny. How could he possibly be dead? In 2016, there was a film entitled Risen. It was a fictitious story about a Roman tribune who supervised the crucifixions that were carried out in Jerusalem at that time. And for the record, it's a pretty good movie if you haven't seen it. But since seeing it, I cannot get the images depicted in the opening of that film, out of my mind, whenever I read any of the gospel passages concerning the crucifixion. The cruelty and the total disregard for the dead was brutally awful. Bodies were tossed like garbage into piles. They'd toss a little lime on them, and they were left to rot. That was it. And though this was just a movie, based on what I've read and researched, it's probably pretty close to the way things went at that time. Our text this morning stands in stark contrast to what would have happened to Jesus were it not for the intervention of a certain man from a town that no longer exists. Two unlikely men stepped up and made sure that didn't happen. Unlikely because we have the benefit of what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. They did not. In looking at their lives, let's see how we might be kinder and improve our faith walk. So pray with me. Father, this is, this is the passage, any time a passage centers in on the death of Jesus, it, it shouldn't be comfortable. It should be difficult. We should realize how costly it was for you and for him that we are here, benefactors of his sacrifice. Just like the military sacrifices, we stand today free and capable of coming to you 
for what he has done for us. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and provide the words that you would have for the people that will hear me. For I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. John, chapter 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body away. Our text begins almost matter-of-factly after this. Well, the after this was the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And then we're immediately introduced to this gentleman, Joseph of Arimathea. Scripture tells us that Joseph was wealthy and a prominent member of Sanhedrin. You know, as I was putting this together, I realized that we throw out the term Sanhedrin like every one of us knows exactly what that is. I don't. I didn't. And I have to tell you, there's considerable debate between Christianity and Jewish scholars concerning the Sanhedrin. And if you're a history buff, I will let you know that there's a link in the app if you can, that you can chase it down. It's actually pretty fascinating. The Sanhedrin was both a religious and governing, i.e. political, ruling body of Judaism in the first century. It's mentioned 21 times in the New Testament and five members that were participants in the Sanhedrin are given to us also in the New Testament. There's um, Ananias, there's Caiaphas, there's Gamaliel, who is mentioned in Acts 5 and 22, there's Joseph of Arimathea here, and Nicodemus, who we met in chapter 3. Now, Joseph was a very common name in the first century, which explains why John includes that he was from the town of Arimathea. As mentioned, it's a town that no longer exists. Scholars think it was about 20 miles or so northwest of Jerusalem, so if he was here, it would probably be approximately where Calquit is in relationship to Bainbridge. Matthew 27, 57 tells us that Joseph was rich. Luke tells us in 23, 51 that he didn't go along with the railroading of Jesus and that he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that shortly, but Mark tells us in 15 to 43 that he, was that he wasn't just rich. He was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. So what do we got? Well-to-do and connected. Few of us would be bold enough to approach any governor when everything is going just great. I don't know anybody personally that would be bold enough to approach someone as ruthless as Pilate, especially amid the spectacle that had just taken place. I mean, think about it. We discussed this only a few weeks ago. The chief priests who lead the Sanhedrin had just manipulated Pilate into killing Jesus. If you were a member of that Sanhedrin, would this be a time you'd want to approach Pilate for a favor? I know I wouldn't. But Mark told us Jewish, that, uh, that Joseph was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now, I have to mention, I had a quite lively conversation over dinner this week with someone about this passage. And the question came up, does looking forward to the kingdom of God make you a believer? Does being a disciple make you 
a believer. And before you jump to conclusions, couldn't both of those things be said of Judas Iscariot? I'll just leave that there. We don't know whether he was or not, but what we do know is he was a disciple of Christ. We also know that at least up until this very moment, he had been so secretly because he feared the rest of the Jews. Clearly something had changed. Joseph had overcome his fear because he asked Pilate for Jesus' body, and by asking him that, he was going to be radically changing the rest of his life. He was about to find out that being rich and well-connected and a prominent member only matters if you're one of the boys. Asking for Pilate asking Pilate for Jesus' body meant he was no longer a disciple secretly. Before preparing for today, it struck me how unlikely and candidly crazy it was what, Jesus, what Joseph did. I mean, it was crazy. Especially when you stop to consider, as I mentioned, he didn't know what we know. He didn't know for certain that Jesus was going to be raised and coming back. I mean, sure, he heard what Jesus had said. He knew that Jesus had said that he would be returning, but any sensible person would have heard everything that he said, but everything that Jesus had done and said had seemingly come to nothing. He was dead. For him, at that very moment, when he chose to decide whether or not to approach Pilate, he didn't know what we know. He didn't know for certain that God would raise Jesus from the dead. Most of us simply would have walked away. We would have been disappointed and walked away. In fact, there's no indication that anybody else stepped up. The 12 disappeared. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, stepped up and risked his prestige, his livelihood, and quite possibly his life because he thought what Jesus had done and taught and said already were enough and that he deserved a proper burial. Some might say he was an idiot, throwing away his life and his career for what in that very moment amounted to nothing more than an act of kindness. That's right an act of kindness. Because if God hadn't risen Jesus, then that act was merely kindness and respect. It wasn't long ago in our country that people would go out of their way for strangers. When I was growing up, it was common, I mean, it really was common for people who weren't paid, by the way, to risk their lives to help somebody in need. Sadly, that's the exception these days more than the rule. But it cannot be emphasized strongly enough that what Joseph of Arimathea did here by asking for Jesus' body was exactly what Jesus had been teaching. To him, it had to seem like what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor. To care for those who can't care for themselves 
to do what they did, not expecting anything. He could no longer continue being a secret disciple. He was willing to risk everything, no matter what might happen to him, to provide a burial fit for royalty, to show a kindness to a dead man that he admired, little realizing that his act of kindness would be recorded and shared for thousands of years. Which raises a question for us. What, if anything, are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to risk for what Jesus has done already? Verse 39. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, Nicodemus was another prominent Pharisee, another ruling member of the Sanhedrin, and he had been curious about Jesus and visited him back when we studied chapter 3. That was at night, if you recall, again, secretly. This is another thing that can happen when Jesus is in the frame. Curiosity. That itch we get sometimes when we're deciding whether or not something is worth our bother. We know, you know, Nicodemus said all the right words back in chapter 3. He said, we know that you must have come from God. But does saying those words equal believing them? There's nothing in the text that indicates that Nicodemus had surrendered his life to Christ at that time. However, like Joseph of Arimathea, his actions after Jesus' death indicated something had changed. He, too, now risked his position, status, by publicly bringing those spices needed for Jesus' burial. Verse 40. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths, with the aromatic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Much as they would for a high-ranking official, say a king or a high priest, Jesus' body was prepared and laid to rest in this new garden tomb. You know, the spices alone that Nicodemus brought were worth thousands of dollars in today's money. Matthew tells us that the tomb was prepared for and belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, probably for himself or for his family, and it was Joseph who actually also provided the large stone that was put in front of the entrance. The garden tomb being nearby was also of note because of all of this occurring on what is referred to as the day of preparation. This is a special observance day for the Jews, which meant that everything had to be done by sundown. It needs to be said again, neither of these men knew what we know now. The sun was going down soon, and they needed to make a decision and make it quickly, and they did. 
despite what had to be great disappointment and no assurance that God would raise Jesus from the dead, they decided to risk everything because of the way that Jesus had lived and what they had seen him do. So what do we have so far? Jesus was dead, headed for a criminal's burial in a dump, two previously secret disciples with substantial political and economic clout step up and are used by God to provide Jesus a burial fit for royalty. <laughs> you know, the likelihood of all of this is absurd. And that's the thing about God's prophecies, especially those about the Messiah. Up to this point, we have been detailing all of the practical aspects of what Joseph and Nicodemus did and likely faced for doing it. But we can't close out this discussion on this text without mentioning its prophetic significance. Isaiah 53.9, Isaiah wrote, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death. He was destined for that garbage dump. And of all the prophecies related to how the Messiah would die and what would happen afterward, you would have to rank this prophecy as pretty obscure. And yet, that is exactly how God tends to operate. God tends to operate contrary to our expectations. To affirm the sonship of Jesus, 700 years before he was even born, God had Isaiah note this about his son, that he would be destined for burial in a dump and would wind up in a tomb meant for a rich man. You can't write this stuff. This is how God tends to operate in the most unlikely of ways. People just coming to grips with the death and disappointment are making unexpected choices, winding up fulfilling God's prophecy. The interwoven events of both prophecy and history never cease to amaze. So how do we tie this all together? Wealth and influence certainly tend to influence and impress people, do they not? And there's no point in denying that both of them can be useful at times, just like they were right here in our text. But neither of those are necessary to be kind. Kindness is unnatural. Risking social and economic capital for people who can't do a thing for you runs counterculture to pretty much everywhere on the planet these days. Kindness is also unnatural, as is risking all of your livelihood, possibly your life. It's just unnatural. I really cruised through that, didn't I? Head, heart, and hands. Head. It's very simple this morning. Start looking for opportunities to be kind for opportunities to care for or help someone who has absolutely no way to repay you. Might seem harsh, but it needs to be asked. If the thought of doing what I just suggested seems ridiculous, are you sure you're a Christ follower? 
You just can't think Jesus is Lord. James tells us that even demons know and believe that. James also told us that faith without works is dead. So it took Jesus dying for Joseph of Arimathea to go from being secretly believing into action. There should be evidence that what you believe comes through in the way that you live. Sometimes the choices are hard. Some choices come with significant risk. I mentioned this across the street earlier. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself to be sure that you're in the faith, which leads us to hands. Hands this week is a challenge. Test yourself by looking to do just one act of kindness for someone not related to you and that can do absolutely nothing for you this week. Doesn't have to be career or life that threatening like it was for these two guys because it's impossible to convey in words the joy that comes with loving your neighbor with an act of kindness. Not with talk, but with action. Strange thing about acts of kindness, when you do one for someone who has absolutely no way to pay you, you get to experience in a very small way what Jesus experienced at Calvary. And this is what I mean by that. While we were yet debtors, debtors, he was willing to die for us. He was willing to take that risk for us, for me, for you. It's not really close, but you get an idea of why it says that Jesus had, for the joy set before him, went to the cross for us. Sacrificial acts of kindness for the benefit of people who can't do anything for you, provide you a unique, special kind of joy. It really is hard to put into words. You have to do it to experience it. So try it for yourself this week, and you will see. If you do, I'll wager this. It will not be a one and done. Once you do it, once you put yourself in a position to do something for someone who can do nothing for you, you will have a chance to understand what the joy that Jesus is talking about and how it differs from the joy that the world is chasing. They're different. There's just no way to, to understand it until you do it. So may it be the first of many acts of kindness on your part. Let's pray. Father, it really is a difficult thing to wrap your head around what Joseph of Arimathea did in risking all that he did when he had no idea that you really were going to raise Jesus from the dead. I'm grateful that you did and that and by his example we had this challenge before us to, to understand the joy that was set before Jesus in a small fractional way that what you expect from us is counter to the things that culture is peddling and saying is the things that we want. What we want is to be a good child of yours. 
We pray it all in Jesus' name.